I'm Spencer Hughes. Thanks a lot for listening. We have Anish Chaudhry, founder of Soul Physio Lifestyle, which is a brain health clinic and integrative healthcare network that specializes in treatments that combine both Eastern and Western medical techniques, which I'm fascinated by Eastern uh, medicine and techniques and trying to learn more and read more on it. And uh, Anish is going to have some information on that for us. He holds a bachelor's degree in neuropsychology from Wright State University and a personal training license through the Cooper Institute. His website is soulphysiolifestyle.com. That's soul, S-O-U-L-H-Y-S-I-O, lifestyle.com. Anish, what a pleasure to have you. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me, Spencer. I'm looking forward to it. Well, this is fascinating stuff. Anything that has to do with uh, neuroscience, it's something in the last five years especially that I've become really, really interested in and engrossed in, and I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos on this stuff. And where did your fascination with this and interest come from? Was it at a, a young age? When did you start looking into things like even Eastern medical techniques, which still a lot of people are not well-versed with? No, that's correct. A lot of it was birthed from my own personal experience. I mean, I dealt with pretty significant mental illness and addiction issues through my teenage years into my early 20s. I was seeing a variety of different mental health professionals, and I was diagnosed with different conditions like depression, anxiety, bipolar, and a few others. And that really just set me on this journey where I was trying to figure out answers. And a big turning point for me was when I got my brain scanned in 2013, and it showed me that it wasn't really a problem with who I am as a person. I think that's so much of what perpetuates mental illness for many people, myself included, but rather learning that the brain is actually responding to our thoughts, feelings, actions, and emotions, ultimately shaping itself in response to the way that we carry ourselves throughout the day. And that just, like I mentioned, put me on this journey where I became very, very interested in self-healing, led to me getting my bachelor's in neuropsychology and a variety of other different wellness certifications and exercise, nutrition, yoga, meditation, genetics, and really just getting a holistic understanding of the mind, the body, and the spirit and kind of how they all roll into each other in terms of how they, they work together. And that's really what, you know, now fast forward present day, I mean, I own two clinics in Southern California and then it's a... Uh, amazing because it just shows what I've done and how it's worked in healing myself and my own brain. So I thought it was just a no-brainer to, to kind of follow that path and be able to show others how to do the same thing. Well, it really is amazing. You've touched on this, the, the healing power of the brain. And when I first learned of the placebo effect, I was fascinated. Then I kind of put it on the back burner going, yeah, that's cool. And then, you know, 20 years later, I revisited it. And I'm, I'm obsessed with the placebo effect because, as you know, the mind can heal and the mind can make us sick the mind can make us well. And the fact that a significant number of people in every trial where it's done pretty much can take a sugar pill told it's going to make their uh, elbow a little more, uh, you know, less tight and stiff, you know, and there's nothing in it but sugar. And then all of a sudden the doctor calls up and says, how you doing? Oh, my elbows never felt better, doc. And it that proves to me right there, that should be the headlines of the New York Times, proof positive that the mind can heal you. I mean, what other explanation is there, Anish, other than the mind is doing the healing? I mean, the, the sugar pill has no effect. It's completely inert, medically speaking. So it has to be in the mind of the person believing that that pill is going to do whatever it is. It's going to get rid of their uh, acid reflux. It's going to get rid of their headache. Right. It's going to get rid of their uh, bowel problems, right? I mean, there's no significance to the pill itself. It has to be in the mind. Right. That's exactly it. I mean, I think it shows that, like you said, once we think we're able to heal, that we will heal. And if we think we are sick, we are sick. And I think that's a lot of 
like an overlooked factor with mental illness is that, you know, we, we think that taking a pill or taking Zoloft or an antidepressant or all these different medications is going to fix the mind, and it never will. It may, you know, it's like playing a game of chemistry and hoping that, you know, the right chemical can fix the problem. And it, it just, it's, it's, a, it's like a very, very poor Band-Aid at best. And oftentimes it causes more problems than it does good. I mean, I spent six years of my life trying to find that right medication or that right, you know, therapist. And, and I just came to the conclusion after six years of just being exhausted and trying every single method that the doctors told me to do. I'm like, these guys really don't know what they're doing. I mean, then that was kind of the, the shocking moment for me when I realized that if I want to get better, I got to figure this out on my own. Like, there's got to be an answer. And, and that what I've been doing is not the answer. And it, it's quite shocking and eye-opening because I think we lean on society so much and the medical community so much when it comes to our health. Yes. But that's where, you know, I had to look deeper and go into the Eastern side and realize that there are real healing modalities and real healing tools out there, but they're not readily available. Like, they, we have to go searching for them. And I think that's where there's a huge opportunity from a business standpoint is to bring those tools to the surface and being able to share my story and say there is a better way. And there is. And I always wondered, why isn't this front page of the New York Times? Why isn't this everywhere? And then as I got older and I started figuring this stuff out, I realized this is a huge, this, it's the same reason why we could probably make a car that gets 500 miles to the gallon, but we don't because it's a threat yeah. to the oil industry. And this is a threat to the medical establishment. I would imagine if, if we yeah. discovered we could heal ourselves, I'm not saying we don't need doctors and doctors aren't important. I'm not saying that at all, but it would mean that the traditional person in the white lab coat, you know, taking our vital signs and everything might not be as integral to our healing as we initially thought. It would be a, a catastrophic blow, wouldn't it, to the established, to the establishment? I mean, it, it would mean trillions of dollars in jeopardy. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's where there's a unique opportunity for collaboration. I mean, I think the problem is that with the allopathic and Western model, they're trained in disease management and care of symptoms. That's the way the doctors are trained. That's the way the curriculum is designed. And so really those things come in with acute interventions like urgent care, surgery, you know, if you have a virus, emergency rooms. That side of it, Eastern medicine can't replicate. But I think the problem is that we're relying on acute measures for chronic problems. And that's where, like, you know, taking pills, we're not meant to be on pills for our whole entire lives. But that's where it is then a threat to the establishment from a monetary perspective is that you think about how much money the pharmaceutical companies are making. It's from my perspective, it's hard for me to believe that, you know, the best interest of everybody in mind, and I don't want to go down on some conspiracy theorist rabbit hole, but once again, speaking from my own experience, that there is not, it's hard to imagine that there is not significant financial incentives that make it sometimes harder to put the care and real health of the patient first as opposed to focusing on the money. We're speaking with brain health expert Anish Chaudhry. Fascinating stuff. Let's bring this to back to school. And I, I have six kids. My wife and I, between us, have six children. Um, one of them's actually uh, just turned 24. The youngest is 13. And three of them are, are in school right now locally. A couple are in California. And 
I remember as a kid the the back to school jitters. I don't care if it was kindergarten or college or first day of high school or whatever it was. The anxiety for me was off the charts as it is for millions of kids every school season. There's just something about coming off of a summer vacation and then having to get back to the books, maybe for the first time in a new school or a new district or something that can cause just off the charts anxiety, especially with young people. And now we throw in a pandemic, Anish, and things are even more stressful than ever. Now we've got kids not only starting up school but now we're telling them they might not be able to be in the classroom. They got to be on Zoom. They're maybe self-conscious that they're on video. They're having to study and retain knowledge and learn in totally different ways that the kid's not used to, the parents aren't used to, and even the teachers are struggling and the administrators. So let's talk a little bit about some tips for parents and kids in this really unprecedented school year. We've never in our lifetimes, I don't think, ever seen anything like this, correct? No. We absolutely haven't. I mean, we're completely in uncharted waters, and I think that's what makes it very, very interesting and difficult for all parties involved. I mean, the, the students, the parents, and the faculty is, is the one common thread, is we're all doing the best we can do to navigate these these completely new circumstances that we really haven't faced before. And I think that it, there's naturally going to be a significant amount of anxiety that comes with that. I think that when I, you speak about fear, and then fear is, is a word that, you know, and not just a word, but a feeling that many people are having. I mean, there's two two of the made the biggest fears that humans have is the fear of death and the fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And both of them right now are being played on significantly. And so that's where it really, really takes conscious measures to be able to overcome that fear and incorporate healthy habits into our lifestyle that gets us to the point where we we know that we're safe in the moment and not just completely riddled with anxiety because it's ultimately going to create trauma for the children in the long term, and that's just not not a good situation. A lot of parents aren't so lucky. They... They've been kind of thrown into this along with the rest of the world and billions of other people that they have no choice. They have to either sacrifice a job, perhaps, to be at home with their kids or hope that their boss is flexible enough to let them work from home during this pandemic. What are some tips that you can give to parents to help make this less stressful for themselves, but certainly for their kids, especially the younger ones who might be really stressed out? Yeah, it's it's a great question and a very valid concern that many people share out there right now and I think it really comes down to at a fundamental level that parents assuring their children on a regular basis that things will be okay that what the situation is right now is temporary and I think that you know encouraging and children to, to journal to write down how they're feeling even if they have no clue just to spend time writing is a great tool for release even if you have no clue what you're writing and so I think for parents they can set aside you know 10 to 15 minutes a day where even the parents spend time writing and silence, you know, keeping the devices away. That way then it becomes a safe space to kind of channel and have an outlet for your feelings. And I think that that's an important thing, being able to, to make sure you're eating fresh foods, cooking at home as often as possible. I think those, those are all practical ways to be able to incorporate health and, and make it something so then it's a family activity and kind of takes your mind off of the world. And I think it's very important to be detoxing from devices now, keeping the TV off, keeping the phones away for, you know, a set-aside period of time and making a practice out of it. Because I think if we're constantly feeding ourselves, you know, uh, new stuff, not to say it's not important to know what's going on, but with all of the different uh, political news and stuff around COVID that's all just being blasted in our face all the time, that's 
always going to put us on edge. And so I think it's important to just be able to take a break from all that. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. I just posted on my social media that um, I, I did an interesting experiment. I started muting. I, I, I used to be just, it's not really important to know this, but in the past, for the, for the first 25 years of my broadcasting career, I was a very uh, divisive type talk radio host on the radio. I didn't even know I was being divisive, really. It's just it was the talk radio I was in, and I burned out on it after 20-plus years. Anisha, it took me that long to realize I, I hated what I was becoming, and I said, you know what? i got to turn to positivity. i got to do something different. So I got out of talk radio, got into more kind of morning drive variety radio, which I'm doing now locally, much smaller than I've ever done, but I'm much happier than I've ever been. And now I'm doing a positivity uh, podcast and, and focusing on the positive, and it's made a world of difference. But I did an experiment just in the last week and I've muted now the social media, if you don't want to, you know, if you feel bad deleting a friend or something, especially if they're family, you can mute them and they'll never know. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to deal You're with right. their posts anymore, regardless of what the politics are, the, per of the people involved, but I've muted or deleted about 20% of the people on my social media feed, right? Which is hundreds of people. And I've uh -huh. eliminated, I've eliminated, it's the 80, 20 principle. 20% of the people yep. muted or deleted. I've eliminated 80% of the negativity on my social media just by muting 20% of the people. And you're right. It's this constant barrage of bad news. And if it's not bad news, it's skewed news. And my, my party's right. Your party's wrong. My religion's right. Your religion's yeah. wrong. COVID's going to kill us. COVID's nothing. Just all these kind of diametrically opposed positions 24-7 can't be good on the uh -huh. psyche. It can't be good for us. Oh, it's not. It's not. And I think that's where social media is a tool, but it can be a tool for creation or destruction. I mean, I think it's just it's just like anything else in this world. It's about our intention behind use. But then also, too, with the amount of stimulation mentally, I mean, the brain just simply can't handle everything that's being thrown at it right now. So, I mean, it takes very, very conscious effort to be able to kind of slow that down and, and be able to actually find that peace. The most majority of people don't have that. I mean, it's a very rare thing, even to have it for just moments, because there's so much information being thrown at us constantly through so many different channels. You know, the thing is that technology is developing at a very high rate, but mm -hmm. the brain is, is, not to say it's not developing, but not nearly at the pace that technology is developing. And it, I think that's where now we're seeing it's like primal breeding grounds for mental health problems in children when when it comes to like overuse on social media and i think it's something as parents to be very very mindful of that as children's brains are developing that you know having this intense stimulation of youtube or instagram or pinterest or whatever different social media or, or different apps that the children are using the level of stimulation that's happening in their brain is it's just being flooded with dopamine and the kids are just going to crave more and more of it and then having them growing up with that level of input on a regular basis is then going to like basically overdevelop their emotional centers and underdevelop the, like the rational centers, which is primal breeding grounds for mental health problems as yep. the children grow up. And I think sure. that's something that's so overlooked because yep. they're like, oh, it's just a little bit of screen time. It's not a big deal. But the way that the brain processes it is it's uh, very dangerous in large quantities. Oh, absolutely. Let's talk, if we could, about some warning signs of anxiety and stress in kids. Kids can be very resilient. It, it may be one of those situations where they see that this is a big deal, this pandemic, but they may see that kids are largely, as a whole, just looking at the numbers, largely 
less affected directly. They're thankfully not as susceptible to it as, as older people are and those with compromised immunity and things like that. So I don't know if that works against them, like it gives them a false sense of security. And that's why you see a lot of young people on beaches, you know, with no masks on and a thousand of them like all cramped together. I don't know, but maybe they're dealing with the anxiety a little bit differently. What are some of those signs, though, that we should look for in our kids, especially now that many of us are spending more time with them than ever educating them and co-educating them at home? What are some things to look for? One of the biggest signs of like as a cry for attention that children display is oppositional behavior. And I think that where parents can, where the disconnect is, is that the parents get angry and start yelling at them, and that actually exacerbates the problem and makes it worse. And know that if children are acting out or doing something that they quote-unquote shouldn't be doing by whatever standards the parents set or rules or any kind of behavior that's out of the ordinary from what they're used to, it's a cry for attention and a cry for help is really what it is. But they're too young to know how to express that. You know, as and, and many adults don't even know how to express that. Like, I need help. That's something that's very hard for a lot of people to say. But it's something that's an, an innate human mechanism that happens at a very subconscious level. So I think that it's very, very important for parents to just be spending time with their children, but not like spending time as in like I'm in the same room with them and, you know, we're maybe talking to each other and they're kind of playing or I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm talking about giving them undivided attention. And I think just that simple step in this time is going to go a very long way. Do you see this being in the long, in the long bigger picture, a shorter term thing? Do you think, I know schools are, it's very hard, and I know there's a lot of chaos, and the schools are having a hard time, and and tempers are short, and and patience is short for people, and we all have to kind of give each other, you know, some some room and, and cut ourselves some slack in every direction. But do you see this as being a long term thing? I, I see it as something that we're going to have to get used to for a while. I'm hoping a vaccination will be at hand sometime in the next six months to a year. Things will normalize, quote unquote. And then we'll just, you know, kind of brace for the next thing that'll happen, which we know it will. If it's not, you know, the, the swine flu, it's this. And in a year or two or 10, it'll be something else. And we'll have to adjust to that when the time comes. But how long do you think we're going to have to be dealing with this? And um, let's talk about that. And then if you don't mind, maybe we'll conclude with some of the lasting effects that COVID can have. Not We, we know the physical effects that can linger for a long time. But I want to talk about the mental impact, uh, mental health impact as well. But how long do you foresee this going? You know, it's a, it's a great question that I don't have a great answer to, unfortunately. I mean, I thought at the beginning of the pandemic it was going to be over at this point. Then I had another thought, and I've just come to a point where I really just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on the medical side. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people doing a lot of research and a lot of analysis that would be much more equipped to handle that question accurately. Sure. So I don't give you or the viewers any potential misinformation but i think the 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 bigger point to raise is kind of the latter question that you mentioned are taking regardless of however much longer COVID is going to be because ultimately no matter how much we analyze the situation nobody has a crystal ball and can tell you it's going to go away on you know june 21st of 2021 at 5 p.m like nobody has that and we're trying to do our best to quantify that and you know, the experts are going to continue to do so, but where my expertise comes in is, is sharing with people uh, that regardless of when that end date is, is not the important question to be asking. I think the more important question is how can we protect ourselves, and that's by boosting our immunity, managing our mental health, because managing mental health it actually will boost immunity, 
because when we're in a state of stress and fear, it, it suppresses our immune system. Yep. And so I think it, it's all interrelated to where ultimately we have to look at what we can control as human beings. And it's, it's unfortunately out of all of our control, like, you know, what, like when COVID is going to go or when the vaccine is going to come. So I think coming to a place of accepting that, you know, we can like get our hopes up and think that things are going to end at a certain point. But I think what's even more important than that is ensuring that, you know, we're spending quality time with our children, we're eating healthy, we're engaging in some type of movement, whether it's just going for a walk or going to, you know, exercising, lifting weights, doing yoga, swimming 20 to 30 minutes a day, and encouraging children to do the same, spending quiet time meditating, journaling, incorporating things of this nature so we develop resilience. So regardless of whether COVID goes away in December or June of next year or June of 2022, for that matter, I mean, I sure hope not, that we will end up being safe and, and comfortable to the best of our ability. And, and like you said, just kind of taking the rest when it comes. I mean, that's, that's the mentality that I've had to adopt. And, and it's really the only way that I can find moments of peace right now. Well, I really enjoyed our time, Anish. Thank you for being with us. And I want people to go to your website, soulphysiolifestyle.com, S-O-U-L, physio, P-H-Y-S-I-O, and then lifestyle.com, soulphysiolifestyle.com, and find out more about you and your programs. And I wish you the best of luck. I'm, I'm really excited for your future in this because you're, you're so successful already and you're, you seem like a young guy to me and you got uh, years ahead of you to further your studies on this and find new discoveries of the mind and body connection. And it's really exciting stuff. And I'm honored that we were able to chat. Thank you. Thank you so much, Spencer. I appreciate that. We all just got to keep the ball moving forward and doing the best we can do to try and help humanity. That's what it's about. Oh, thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you.